Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 31, The Massachusetts Bay Colony. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast, and should you wish to support it, one of the best ways of doing that is leaving a review on iTunes. It is a great way to help out, in addition to not taking much time, and being 100% free. Having spent the last 13 episodes dealing with the Pilgrims, from their roots in the European Reformation to Plymouth Colony in 1628, from the starving few freezing to death in the wilderness to a healthy colony about 300 strong. I want to pause the narrative and turn towards the colony which would eventually absorb Plymouth, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This will involve taking us a bit into the future, but its future will be very closely tied with Plymouth, since they are both rather important in the foundation of the state of Massachusetts, which, when it comes down to it, is the series we're currently working on. I've mentioned before that the grand scheme of this podcast, for the opening anyway, is to go through the English colonies and bring them up to the 1670s, then we can cover Native American history and global politics before advancing into the later colonial era. So, in this manner, we sort of need to take Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay together. This is why I'm including it here in the narrative, while when we were focusing on Virginia, we skipped over the founding of Maryland. Though this may yet change, since a lot of the New England colonies have such interconnecting histories. Plymouth was the first and most successful of the early New England plantations. While it found success, it wasn't the type of immediate riches those back in London were looking for. They didn't trust the Pilgrims, and there had been too many issues with it. Other colonies began to spring up. We've already looked at Weston's attempt to found Wessagusset, which was a disaster, and then the whole fiasco at Mount Merry, with selling firearms to the natives. But on the fringes of the narrative, I hope I've been able to put across the point that things were beginning to get more organised. I've mentioned the foundation of Weymouth previously, and indeed Sir Ferdinando Gorges of the Council for New England, and Captain John Mason, were key figures in setting up legal claims along the New England coast. I, at this point, want to issue a correction. I said back in episode 27 that Ferdinando Gorges briefly spent time in New England as the Governor-General before returning home, but I misread my material. It was his son, Robert Gorges, who was briefly the Governor-General of New England before he decided the colonial world wasn't for him. My bad. There were other colonies being set up too. Reverend William Blackstone on the Shawmut Peninsula, the site which would be the home of Boston, and Samuel Maverick settled at Noddles Island in Massachusetts Bay. There is another settlement I've mentioned a couple of times in the narrative, Cape Ann, which is on the northerly limits of Massachusetts Bay, which was founded in 1623, and Plymouth had been involved with since its foundation. It was funded by a group of merchants from Dorchester, 
the leading figure of which was Richard Bushrod, although the spirit of the Enterprise was Reverend John White, an Anglican rector of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Dorchester. Merchants were interested in the fishing opportunities of the New England coast, while White hoped that he could make it a religious settlement too. Like many of the expeditions to the region, which harboured dreams of growing rich off the fishing potential of the settlement, it was unable to prosper despite the efforts of a number of important individuals, including Roger Conant, and it collapsed in 1626, with most of the settlers returning back to England. Conant stayed, though. He believed that the colony could work. In the autumn of 1626, he moved southwards from Capan and founded a settlement at the mouth of the Naumakag River. This settlement was the town of Salem. Yes, that Salem. Although it wouldn't receive this name for a couple more years, but I'll get to that. I'll post a map of all this on the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. Conant was very optimistic about Salem, and spread word of his confidence back to England, where it greatly excited Reverend White. Conant had also come round to thinking that Salem could be a refuge for those who were growing unhappy with the religious state of affairs back in England. A lot of this had to do with William Lord. Born in 1573, he came to prominence first under James I and then under Charles. He was fiercely devoted to church unity and opposed Puritanism, and how it was making a mess of everything. He would support national uniformity of the church, all under the Book of Common Prayer. He was a close advisor of Charles, and would be made Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633. This office he held until he was executed by Parliament in 1645. So, in these years, persecution of Puritans increased on a greater scale than that which forced the pilgrims to flee to Leyden. It must be remembered, though, that these were a different source of Puritans than those at Plymouth. While the pilgrims left the Church of England to found their own congregation, which is why they are called both separatists and congregationalists, Reverend White wanted to take the Reformation to its logical conclusion from within the Church of England, purifying it. So, while similar to Plymouth, it was also different. Based on this, White made his appeals to the businessmen of London and the Puritans of Eastern England, and he was able to gather together some support, enough to found a new company, the New England Company, which appealed to the Earl of Warwick, who was the president of the Council for New England, for a land patent, which they received in March 1628. The grant stretched from three miles north of the Merrimack River, down three miles south of the Charles River, and from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific. There are two problems with this. There is the obvious problem, which isn't that important, and then there is the less obvious problem, which is very important. The obvious problem is with the sea to shining sea nature of the grant, 
But this isn't a realistic issue, since they weren't sure how big America was at this point. I mentioned when we talked about the initial foundation of Plymouth, that the early explorers suspected New England was an island. This was still the case in 1628. It was thought that the Hudson was connected to the St. Lawrence, so this wasn't as huge a claim as it might seem. Not that, once the full extent of America was discovered, it would stop states from claiming such huge tracts of land. Virginia, Massachusetts, New York, and Connecticut would all claim huge tracts of land in the Midwest, which it would take until the end of the 18th century to fully resolve. But, as I say, it wasn't a real issue. The more pressing problem was caused by the grant overlapping with prior patents given to Gorges and Mason. If you think they were just going to sit back and let another colony take their land without causing a fuss, you would be mistaken. When the New England Company sent over John Endicott to replace Roger Conant as the man on the ground, they realised just how much opposition they had there, and that a legal challenge would be mounted. The solution for the New England Company was just to go around the backs of the Council for New England, to the source of all legal authority, the king. They appealed to Charles for a new patent, and this was granted in March 1629. The land grant remained the same, but the company had greatly expanded powers. It was, as part of this process, renamed, and it became known as the Governor and Company of the Massachusetts Bay in New England, or, in short, the Massachusetts Bay Company. The grant overruled the other grants which had been given in the region by the Council for New England. Our focus has been on Plymouth in the 1620s in New England, but I have been trying to keep the narrative of the Council for New England in the background just plodding along, and I hope it has come across in the narrative just how unorganised the whole thing was. It was a mess. A real mess. It was also a bizarre setup, with the council holding the grant and then giving other grants to a medley of different investment groups. There was no real plan at work, and what had resulted was a confused shamble of crisscrossing land claims within the English territory, not to mention the claims of other Europeans, such as the Dutch, had to the region. Or, oh, heaven forbid, the people who were already living there, the Native Americans. The Massachusetts Bay Company would directly manage the region, eliminating the unnecessary middleman. This is a rather significant moment in the history of the region. And not just for the history of Massachusetts. Mason and Gorges were not happy with how all this had gone on, and they were not going to abandon their efforts, even though they hadn't really done anything to populate their territories beyond a few token settlers. But this forced them to get a bit more serious about it. So these odd little settlements were divided between Mason and Gorges. Gorges would take the land between the Kennebec and the Piscatacawa rivers, while Mason took the lands between the Pitsastakawa and the Merrimack. Gorges' land became the province of Maine, and Mason's became the province of New Hampshire. So, almost out of nowhere, We've gone from having Plymouth Colony in New England to also having Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. 
although the histories of these four colonies are heavily intertwined, and Massachusetts will, at one point or another, absorb the other three. But that is not for quite a ways down the line. Since they are terribly small settlements, we won't have much to say about Maine and New Hampshire for a while, but just so you know, they do sort of exist at this point. I say sort of because neither of them have the same strong setup and charter which would define Virginia and Massachusetts. Speaking of which, we should probably talk a bit about what this setup was. First things first. The colony would have a governor and a board of 18 executive assistants, which were elected by freemen or stockholders. The government could make laws, appoint officials, and punish wrongdoers. In short, all matters which were necessary for orderly government. John Endicott was named as governor, and it was decided that the colony would make their primary settlement the one on the Naumakag, which now received the name of Salem, meaning House of Peace. It was funded by a mixture of merchants from London and Dorchester, while the settlers were mostly Puritans, and in 1629, several hundred of them prepared to set off for Salem, along with all the supplies they would need to set up a colony, such as tools, goods for trade, and cattle. One of the many excited by the possibilities was John Winthrop. Born in 1588, he was a country gentleman from Suffolk, who took up work as an attorney in order to support his growing family. He would have 16 children. Winthrop and the other Puritans felt that England was about to feel God's wrath, and was thrilled at the potential of unexploited land just waiting in New England. It wasn't an easy decision to go, though. Winthrop felt like he was abandoning England and all his friends there when they needed him most, but it was not enough to change his mind. Winthrop thought he would be better able to do the Lord's work in the New World, where he could build something great, free from the interference of the royals and the Anglican Church, which could serve as a shining example to decadent Europe. In Winthrop's own words, quote, We must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. End quote. As Winthrop got involved with the colony and brought other Puritans with him, events sped up, and he found himself elected governor of the company in October 1629. Winthrop was part of a group of great men, members of the gentry, who would define their generation, along with John Pym, John Hampton, and of course, Oliver Cromwell. He was reasonable and intelligent. His religion reflected his character rather than defining it. He was known well by the Puritan gentry, merchants, lawyers, and ministers, and it isn't that surprising that once he was on board for the expedition, he quickly became prominent in it. We'll have plenty more to say on Winthrop as the series progresses, but it's safe to say that he was a giant of history. What you'll see as we tell this story is that through Winthrop and his associates, the mark of Puritanism is, while time may have altered it, still imprinted on American society. 
but we shall leave that for next time. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. This can be done at the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, by clicking on the PayPal subscription button. It gives you access to the premium feed for the cost of only $4.99 per month. That is also the place to go to for maps, since today has been quite map-heavy. Those maps can also be found on social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. And also feel free to send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The email address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 